Welcome to Skeptex, the weekly show where we take a deep dive into the world of tech news, politics and research. I'm Diana. And I'm Josh. And today we have a slightly special episode mm-hmm. where we're going to be talking to each other about our own research because we recently both passed a couple of milestones. Diana has... <laughs> well, I can, I've completed my confirmation of status, which is a pretty big milestone in the PhD at Oxford. Final checkpoint. Final checkpoint. And Josh even much bigger than that, handed in his PhD and subsequently passed his viva and is now Dr. Josh Coles, or at least, I think soon so. Enough. Yeah, yeah, soon yeah. enough, anyway. Exactly. Um, so huge, huge milestone, which we haven't officially kind of celebrated and talked about very much on this podcast, even yeah. though we posted about it on social media. And we realised that we, at least not in my memory or not in recently in this iteration of the podcast, have we taken the time to talk to each other and ask each other about our research. Probably because um, we've often used the podcast as a bit of an escape from our own (laughs) research at times. But I think now that we've completed these big milestones, um, we have a lot to reflect on as well. Definitely. And as you say, I think it's a good opportunity just to sort of talk through what we do and how maybe it's relevant to what uh, we talk about on the show, because actually it is in both cases, as we'll find out. Um, But I think we're going to start with probably my research. Yeah, um, you've you've got the PhD now. You're in the hot hot seat. Over to you, Nina. (laughs) Ask whatever difficult questions you can think of. Okay, let's maybe start by talking about what your PhD actually was about. Um, It's it's so weird talking about it in the past tense, isn't it? (laughs) Um, So your thesis is a case study of the social media platform Parler, which we actually have talked about on this podcast before. Josh, do you want to talk to us a little bit more about maybe the elevator pitch about what your PhD actually focuses on with Parler? Yeah, so Parler is one of um, several uh, platforms that you could think of as being part of the alt-right, or I call them sort of fringe platforms. Parler is one of many of these platforms, um, which caters to a particular audience, a kind of right-wing, far-right adjacent audience. Uh, And it was shut down, basically taken offline effectively, um, after shortly after the capital riots in January 2021, which of course, as we know, saw uh, a mob of supporters of Donald Trump um, lead an attempted insurrection at the US Capitol. And so that really uh, struck me as a really interesting subject to focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, because on the one hand, you know, I'm not remotely sympathetic to uh, the sort of ideology that Parler users were tending to be trafficking. But on the other hand, it's a, it was a pretty severe uh, and serious reaction on the part of uh, both Apple and Google, the App Store operators who took Parler out of their app stores, and also uh, Amazon, who effectively took, uh, took the platform temporarily offline. Um, and it showed the fact that two or three companies can essentially get together uh, at any one time and decide that a platform shouldn't be online. Of course, it's a rare case, um, and that's what makes it an interesting case to study. Uh, but I decided to focus on the app store governors, Apple and Google, and how they acted uh, in the wake of the capital, capital riot, and also how they acted or didn't act in the year or so running up to it, where there was plentiful evidence, as I found, that there was um, serious problems with Parler, uh, problems that seemed to contravene Apple's and Google's own guidelines on it. Uh, and so I looked into those guidelines, looked at the sort of status quo ante before January 2021, uh, as the main focus of the case study. But yeah, that's the elevator pitch. And Great. To no, that's really it. interesting. It sounds like the capital riots were a really big kind of um, motivational point for your thesis. So in the run-up to before that, was your focus a little bit different? Did that kind of solidify and crystallize why you wanted to choose Parler or had you had that in mind for some time? Yeah, it came at a really interesting and maybe useful time in the course of my PhD research because mm-hmm. I'd already honed in on... 
Um, I think hate speech as being something I wanted to take quite seriously online. Um, platform governance broadly, there are already quite a few you know, really interesting articles scoping out what this thing that we call platform governance is and who it applies to and, and so on. And so that um, that moment really encapsulated a lot of the issues I'd already been thinking about. And that's the point where I decided to really shift and to make it a case study on Parler. But instead of looking at the very immediate history of the actual takedown of Parler, I thought it made more sense to kind of look at least a year back mm-hmm. uh, at what had been going on prior to that and whether there were earlier intervention points potentially, but also looking obviously at whether the decision to remove it uh, was a sensible and a justifiable one or not. Mm-hmm. And I think it also chimed with a slightly longer standing um, set of research that many scholars had had been looking at, um, which is, has got various different names. Some call it deplatformization. Yeah. Others call it sort of navigating and governing the tech stack. Um, Laura Donardis has talked about the hidden levers of internet control. All these kind of conversations had started to be surfacing over the previous years about the role not played by social media platforms themselves like Facebook and Twitter, but actually the role of those companies further up the stack who do provide sort of platform services but provide them to other platform companies. And that was what was uh, relevant, particularly in the case of Parler. Yeah. So that kind of structured the case study because I had a two-part really approach. On the one hand, I looked at the higher level of the app store operators themselves, Apple and Google, and how yeah. you know, their rules, their procedures and so on, and how they sort of sought to legitimate um, their governance. But then I looked a bit further down the stack at Parler itself and Parler as an interesting uh, aspect of this, itself had its own kind of rules and procedures and much more so than, say, Gab or an 8chan or the really extreme far-right. It did pertain to be a functioning social network that could rival Facebook, Twitter and so on. And Mm -hmm. so that added a bit of interesting qualitative data to the study as well. Yeah. How does... How... I mean, I guess Parler is now an inactive social network or an inactive social media platform. Well, it was quite interesting actually. So it was it it was taken down temporarily, as I say, in twenty twenty two. Yeah. It then went through a series of um, lurches, which made the write up quite interesting. So I think in October twenty twenty, well, I'm losing track. Some point in the year or two following, um, Kanye West said he wanted to buy it. <laughs> oh wow! I did that a, must have really revitalised you. Yeah, own. it must have been twenty twenty two. I think because that was when Musk was also looking to buy Twitter, mm-hmm. um, and obviously Donald Trump had set up Truth Social. So you had this almost trifecta of yeah. rich, powerful, slightly old men hmm. with their own bespoke um, social, nearly in, in Kanye's case, with their own uh, social media platforms. That was quite interesting. And then uh, Parler eventually got um, bought out. It did, it did, It did. to be clear, it did come back online. Apple and Google both brought it back online in 21 and 22, respectively. And uh, just as I was about to, I was writing it up, and it parlor got bought out um, by a kind of a web services company and was was taken offline. Um, and so that was another interesting sort of ironic timing. Um, and actually, when they bought it, they said that uh, they felt that there wasn't ultimately it wasn't feasible to have what they called a conservative Twitter clone. Mm. And that phrase really kind of when I was kind of redrafting mm. actually recently just to submit my minor corrections, that that um, phrase was something I used is to sort of reflect on the fact that was this all along just a conservative Twitter clone or was it something a bit more interesting? I would say the platform itself probably fits that description fairly well, but what happened to it, I think, was was really interesting. Yeah, we, we talk a lot on the podcast uh, regularly about, you know, Twitter clones and other forms of social media clones, don't yeah. we? We talk about apps like Coup, which are basically... Um, and it does feel like um, new platforms find it hard to imagine themselves away 
from the existing giants that we yeah. have in the field. I'm interested, do you kind of offer thoughts on in your PhD about how you think, you know, what you think the landscape is for these sort of small fringe platforms? Do you think they're growing? Do you feel like this is an emerging, I'm not going to say threat is maybe one way of saying it, or an, an emerging problem? Um, do you feel like these are spaces where people, you know, conservatives or people on the more extreme end of that kind of tend to congregate and be, be radicalized? Or do you feel like it's all um, in relationship with these other networks and these other existing platforms like Twitter or Facebook? Yeah, good, good question. I think uh, a trend that we've seen over the last sort of five or so years is that it has got a bit easier to run one's own platform. And right. here we can define platform very broadly from anything. I mean, I wouldn't call, say, a subreddit a platform necessarily, or even a Discord server. It depends how we choose to define these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly there is increasing, like the, the technical bar to getting a platform online is lowering, just as the social media landscape is kind of fracturing. And this has gone in interesting directions because, of course, when I was first looking at Parler, Twitter was still, you know, headed by Jack Dorsey. Elon Musk wasn't involved. Um, and it um, it was actually doing some quite good stuff to, to try to push some of these more extreme voices to the margins whilst maintaining the sort of fundamental commitment to to allowing free expression on the platform. That, of course, has changed with Musk. And in a way, I think it's taken some of the steam out of some of these rival networks because right. Twitter has <laughs> become it that place like where they safe, can stay. Uh, exactly. safer space for the right wing, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. In contrast to the period of time I was looking at in 2020, I did go through, as part of the study, I went through a small sample of um, parlor posts at the time. And huge numbers of um, people were talking about parlor as a sort of, yeah, an alternative Twitter. Like it was almost a, became a bit of a meta statement on the platform itself to talk about how this wasn't Twitter. And actually a lot of the conservative politicians, Republicans in the US who said they were joining parlor did this, mm. what I call it, kind of performative migration where they said, oh, I'm going to leave Twitter, I'm going to go on to Parler, and ended up not really staying there. So the network effects were still really strong. But that, as I say, was kind of neutered by the, the new tack that Elon Musk has taken with Twitter. Yeah, that's really interesting. And do you feel like that's something that's going to be true for, I don't know, other parlor, Parler-like platforms in the future? Do you feel like Twitter has kind of now become that home for people? Yeah, well, the big one is uh, that, that still kicks on is Truth Social, right. uh, which Trump is still yeah. operating. Who knows what role it's going to play if he wins yeah. the nomination? Um, but he, you know, he's been essentially invited back with a red carpet to Twitter, and he hasn't come. I assume he's got some investments in Truth Social. He wants to keep keep going. I haven't personally checked on how well that's working, but the fact that it's still remotely functional is, yeah. already extends the lifespan of a Trump product in general. So uh, he's uh, yeah, something is still going on there. Um, beyond that, um, I think you do get, it does get into very radical territory very quickly. Mm. Um, but the key thing is that whether it is, um, you know, sort of, uh, very kind of musky kind of Twitter platform now or a true social or something even further to the far right. Um, the key thing is that it's now the, the burden of decision-making has shifted up the tech, um, chain, if you like, up the stack towards Companies like Apple and Google in the case of app stores, but also Cloudflare, Amazon Web Services and these other companies who provide kind of GoDaddy in, in the domain sense, who provide these sort of what were um, uh, seen as, I think, relatively apolitical services, but have become politicized or perhaps their politics have been better revealed by the events of the last um, five or so years, which I think mm-hmm. is another interesting thing to follow out of this. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting. Um, I think this is obviously a part of your thinking about your PhD. And 
you know, maybe this is a big question to ask, but what what role do, you know, these big giants like Apple play in sort of recommending these apps to us on the app store or promoting these apps or not doing so? Um, you know, if I were to open my app store, at what point would I be recommended something like Parler? How does that, that work, essentially? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned recommendation because what I don't, I didn't look at particularly in uh, the, so the, the, when I started at the PhD, I thought I wanted to look at sort of something to do with AI ethics. So I mm. went down the route of looking at hate speech and looking at sort of hate speech detection. We have like great people working on that at this, uh, this institute and beyond. But being that I'm not a super technical um, computer scientist trained uh, scholar, what stuck out to me as more interesting was how those hate speech detection systems were getting developed, what decisions and choices were going into how they were designed and when they're deployed and, and so on. And that's kind of what led me to this place where when the parlor thing happened, I was able to kind of jump on that. Yeah. Um, and so now when we look back at record, like using algorithms or using any systems to, to recommend apps, you know, you can see the, particularly in Apple's case, the app store as being a recommendation engine in itself. So if, if, you find any app in Apple's App Store on an iPhone and say, based on Apple's own kind of claims, you should be able to trust that app very much. Right. You should, it should be functional. It shouldn't, you know, steal your credit card information, <laughs> but but it also should abide to certain more content-based rules that yeah. they have in place, including, um, you know, the if you're big enough to be considered a platform, you have to have moderation systems in place yourself to stop the spread of things like hate speech and so on. Google's prescriptions are actually even stronger. Obviously, you can install apps on Google phones outside of their app store, but similar kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So although I don't think there's a hugely significant role for Apple, uh, Apple's kind of app store recommendations, the fact that it's on an app store in the first place is should be its own kind of recommendation. I think that really puts the onus on Apple and Google as these app store operators to take very seriously that role. And if they're mm. going to make claims about the safety and security of the app store and then charge a 15 to 30% take on many of their transactions, they need to be able to back it up with um, really robust app store governance systems, mm. which my thesis found you know, isn't always the case. Really fascinating. I never even thought of that, the fact that when you look something up on the app store, you're kind of you know trusting the fact that Apple suggested it. It's not going to... I'm not going to see something. I'm not going to see hate speech on this. I'm not yeah. going to see a lot of, you know... I actually... Yeah, so you mentioned that your PhD changed a lot mm -hmm. uh, from the beginning to the end. And so maybe this question about what are your reflections about, you know, your feelings about some of this stuff from the beginning of your PhD to the end may be quite different for you because it sounds like it's a different beast altogether yeah. um but what are the kind of things that you only really thought about at the at the, the the final stretch that maybe changed from the beginning yeah i mean it's certainly anything that's a multi-year project that has some relation to the kind of outside world particularly the fast changing world of tech is going to change like i think if you yeah. stick so closely to your guns that you're not able to take account of that you're you know you're, you're going to get stuck um Obviously, on the other hand, you don't want to blow in the wind too much because you need to be able to look back on three or four or five years of work and say, OK, I'm, I really am drawing on work I did in my first year and my second year when I'm writing this up. Even if I'm not literally copying across chapters or drafts, you need to think, you know, you need to look back and think, OK, this was a really good use of time from year one yeah. up until the present. So that's more of a com comment on, I think, a bit of positive thinking, really, about what <laughs> you have learned, even without realising it may be picked up on readings you've done, data you've looked at and so on. I, I hope that's true. <laughs> I mean, I'm, sure it, I'm sure it is for, for everyone in, in one way or another. Uh, and then as I, yeah, so as I got through, I think um, the other kind of, 
cognitive lesson I learned is that you your brain, no one's brain is equipped to sort of um you think of it as like a computer metaphor, right? At the risk of stretching that brain computer analogy. You have the kind of um long term storage in your computer, mm. which is measured in, you know, many, many gigabytes which you can sort of store away. And then the the RAM, you know, what you're accessing at any given moment. And the size of a PhD is such that you can't keep all of it in RAM. You have to store some of it away and come back to it, even when you have close to the finished product in front of you. So when I was looking through, you know, the 200 odd pages of the PhD, you just can't navigate around it and have a very clear, like, live view of what is in every page at every time. No. So I think a good sort of thing to say here is, and particularly I think for those of us doing monographs, because yep. it's not as easy to just to, to, to publish and forget. Yep, Josh um, and I have sort of <laughs> yeah. complained about this before to each other privately. Yeah, so basically Nina and I are both doing a monograph thesis where um, it's not designed to be sort of three papers stitched together. It's it's designed to be a, yeah, like a book, essentially. A book, yeah. Uh, which introduces some, yeah, some cognitive challenges, I think, that are, mm. that are a bit different. But I think you just need to be a bit... A bit Software on yourself, basically, and say like you don't. Nobody has the mental dexterity to sort of keep your entire thesis in mind at any given moment, any no. more than you know the sort of five minute description. Absolutely, uh, and just sort of work with your <laughs> work with that to try and get chapter by chapter done, and then iterate through rather than try and do it all at once. Yeah, I think the difficult thing is definitely the feeling of your opinions are changing, and you you're able to change some of the big ideas. But to navigate through the whole thesis and find these threads of things that you wrote two years ago yeah. when you thought something and then you've changed your mind about it. Not even necessarily a radical about turn, no. but a sort of the way you phrase things is different. Yeah, kind um, of anything from phrasing to like a two to three sentence kind of point. You're yeah. very liable to forget. Or I think that's misplace. true. And you've just got to be maybe easier on yourself. The thing a lot of people say to me is that they were just more hopeful at the beginning of their PhD well, yeah. in so many ways, but also optimistic about the things that tech platforms can do right. or that the impact that a thesis or a PhD can have in, you know, um, championing those problems and raising solutions as well. Um, and that at the end, there's much more of a feeling of, I'm not sure that's possible. Well, I think, you know, I think the the variable which you kind of lose sight of over the course of it is... Um, I think you become more humble, generally, of course, PhD, which is good. But it does mean that when you get to the end of it, you're, you, you do develop, it's kind of done in Kruger, really, but you develop a bit of uh, yeah, uncertainty about your own work, about your own brain at certain points. And it does mean that I think just when you, uh, as you submit and you, and, and you defend it, just when you need that burst of confidence is often when you're most lacking it because you think, oh, I've made so many you know, compromises or I, you know, haven't perfected every yeah. typo here and therefore it's rubbish. And of course, that's not, not true. Yeah. Maybe we'll talk at the end a little bit about things we would have done differently. <laughs> yeah. But that might be a good segue in the meantime to talk a bit about your research. Yeah. Thank you. So again, you know, you've you just passed your confirmation, which... Well, uh, I have submitted my Sorry, confirmation. Sorry, well, The actual well. interview itself may be um, some time away. Yes, true. Um, <laughs> but it's good to at least have a, a, a an object. Which yes, I think I've, I, I've done my part. <laughs> yeah, I, I, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, same question to you really. At this stage, with obviously more caveats, given that you haven't um, mm -hmm. completed the thing yet. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about it basically. Thank you. So uh, my PhD is about digital storytelling platforms in India and um, people always ask what does digital storytelling mean? So digital storytelling is a really broad term that's basically used for any kind of you know creative story practice um, that involves technology so that can be filmmaking, it can be 
you know, song, it can be like art, it can be a lot of things, but mine is mostly focused on text or um, oral stories, um, partly because of my own background in English literature. And that's just, um, you know, I think it lends itself well to various kinds of qualitative analysis as mm -hmm. well. Um, so I look at these platforms, which have really emerged in India over the last like decade or so, which are these kind of small to medium to quite large um, storytelling or e-publishing platforms where people essentially self-publish their work. Um, and some of them are focused around specific forms. Some of them are focused around specific languages. Um, the, the chapter I submitted for confirmation was actually um, a rural storytelling platform called Voices of Rural India, which is kind of like a tourist platform where they set up set it up during the COVID pandemic um, to try and entice tourists to come back to visit once the pandemic finished. Mm. Um, and they also kind of posted these stories um, as a of traditions and kind of folklore from their communities as a way of preserving those traditions. Um, and what I'm looking at is the ways in which platforms um, shape creativity mm. and the ways in which these platforms, you know, the, the medium through which we write and through which we share stories um, shapes that kind of narrative voice. The extent to which narrative voice is even possible to, to like discern on the internet and the kind of um, freedom and you know ability to share what can be just like seen as authentic thought or, or creativity online um, and also you know the the way in which this is framed in India I think is really important we talk a lot about India on this on this um, mm -hmm. podcast India is a really big link from my work to the podcast I think um, which is thinking about how more and more platforms have emerged in India but at the same time there's a really big um, rightward shift in India. I'm going to go far to say as an extreme rightward shift. Mm -hmm. um, and that has framed narratives in things like Bollywood, for example. And that's framed, um, you know, certain writing freedoms for journalists. So I wanted to see how that shapes creative writing, mm -hmm. which is often something that historically, you know, we, we know about books being banned and we know about freedoms being curtailed in fascist countries. But it can also, I think in a modern, because people tend to read books slower and less than they do other things, like watch movies, that can, it can be quite slow to realize that, you know, narratives are changing mm. in, in literature and online. Yeah. So that's a broad, um, nice. you know, point about my thesis. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like it's really hard once you've just written something to try and condense it down. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So you, you talk about um, also different platforms, large and small. Mm -hmm. You mentioned languages, which of course is a huge yeah. factor in India, which you don't really think about it, certainly in this country so much, um, given how many official and unofficial languages India has. Yeah. Um, so how are you sort of, maybe this is imposing too much of a kind of categorization lens, but how are you thinking about those platforms? What kind of distinctions between them? I mean, obviously you mentioned size, mentioned languages. The mm. other that sticks out to me just based on what you've said is how much kind of ordering or even governance is there in, in relation to these platforms? Or is it purely kind of self-publishing? No, there is a lot of governance. One of the platforms that I'm going to look at and haven't written this chapter yet is called Juggernaut.in, not to be confused with actually a big South Asian uh diaspora magazine also called juggernaut okay. which emerged during the course of this phd but is different um essentially you know the website has like editors it has people who run the website it has um like translators you know it has ceos it, it's it's a it's a company that also 
like is a digital publishing house. So mm. sometimes the books that are published online then make it to print because they have a physical kind of presence. Um, and that's one of the big platforms in India. On the other hand, Voices of Rural India is a really small platform that basically has a small team of, I mean, it, it's it's funded via, via an NGO. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, its kind of motivation is a little bit different and it has a smaller team of, of volunteers as well as the, the three people who founded the platform who I spoke to during my um, writing of the chapter. But um, as you can see, just from those two examples, the motivations are really different for why why these platforms exist. Um, you know, in one case, it's this idea of tourism, but also um, preserving local knowledge and tradition and community. And on the other hand, it's much more typical to what we think of as the motivations for traditional commercial publishing. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, I wanted to have platforms that were made in India and platforms that you know, were specifically for the Indian market. I didn't want them, I didn't want to focus so much on big tech platforms. And I didn't want to focus on like Kindle or Amazon or anything like that, because I wanted to think about the ways in which these platforms grow in India. And actually it's become a lot more platform focused than I initially thought. I thought Mm. it'd be much more about storytellers Mm. and it's ended Mm. up being a lot more about platforms than I expected. Yeah, and given the fact that those platforms, as you say, are mostly sort of homegrown, if you like. Yeah, yeah, that is what the word I use. Oh, nice, okay. Um, How does the rightward shift that you talk about in India affect not just maybe the narratives, which we can talk about, but Mm. also either the rules or the kind of self-censorship perhaps of what mm. people are willing to say online. Do people write anonymously, for example, or are there options Interesting. I think the research I do on Juggernaut will reveal a lot more of that because it's a much more commercial platform. Mm. I feel like um, a lot of the people who work in, um, you know, literary fields or publishing or a lot of these people are who I think of as India's kind of liberal elites Mm -hmm. who actually themselves are not hugely supportive of the Modi government or indeed like actively anti it but it's not always possible to raise those points when in your in your role um, or to be too outwardly critical of of the government right now so um it's not like you know we're seeing loads of necessarily people I mean it's almost like people shying away from those topics mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. Um, or yeah I think there is a practice of self-censor- self-censorship of people thinking well if I have a, a book about an interfaith relationship mm-hmm. um, it's probably like not gonna do as well as this kind of book um, in Bollywood for example there's a really big trend at the moment of films about India's past, specifically focusing on like Hindu leaders mm-hmm. and, you know, great Hindu epics and wars and like victorious in, you know, Hindu Indian kings. Um, you know, there's films that have done really well, like RRR and also Bahubali and like these films that really like broke the box office mm-hmm. basically in India and abroad. For, and that that kind of says that people are choosing to tell these stories because they don't really have a huge amount of choice, I think, even if that involves a kind of a revisionist history of India. Um, And I think to an extent, you can see that a little bit on platforms like Juggernaut as well, of people focusing on, you know, historic, patriotic periods of India, like this kind of great and glorious past. Yeah, let's maybe talk a little bit more about the data that you're using Mm. here. So I'd imagine that you have at least two sets of data, one being the text themselves. Yeah. And I understand you're also obviously talking to the yeah. writers themselves. So how did you think about that whole universe? 
Um, a little bit. So initially, it was going to be a lot more focused on talking to loads of people, mm. and I think that actually the stories themselves are such a rich source of data that yeah. I didn't want to under underplay them. Um, and I also think that there's data just to be seen in doing like platform walkthroughs yeah. um, and kind of reading the like you know reading the apps themselves almost and because this is a phd so much about reading and so much about narrative it's kind of interesting to read the narrative that apps tell you or the narrative Mm -hmm. that you know what websites tell you um and i think there are loads of theories that i'm hoping to come up with out of this about how we read the internet and how our framing of a platform shapes the way we look at it um and I think that at the moment, the sources of data are basically interviews, these platform walkthroughs mm-hmm. and readings of the internet and obviously the texts themselves. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, bringing them all together is, it's kind of hard. Like it's, mm-hmm. um, it, it's interesting because, you know, you're, I think there's an, a way in which talking to people is always the most interesting because it's so dynamic. Yeah. If, if you like talking to people, it, it's, it's exciting to hear what they say. Mm-hmm. But you also have to just bear in mind that what you're hearing from people is going to be, you know, a lot of people, especially corporate people, are used to promoting what they do in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're not necessarily going to be like as honest as sometimes other forms of, you know, they they might say something that their website belies or that their texts kind of belies. So it's interesting marrying all these different things together. Definitely. So um, I guess the sort of final question on on this. It all sounds really interesting. I'm, well, I'm glad that you're taking such a like a broad lens view to like platforms and what, like what constitutes a platform. How to <laughs> how to hone in on uh, your kind of sample, which sounds great. But what's left to do basically between now and Oof. I mean, you have a bit of time, right? Yeah, but, I have about six to nine months ish. Maybe probably a bit. Long, maybe a bit longer I don't That's know fine. it depends on certain things <laughs> yeah I mean the best laid plans right yeah. um, I have two chapters left to go that are like actual data chapters one of them is when I was talking to you about Juggernaut and one of them is a bit more about like oral storytelling and how the internet um, has shaped a little bit of our like oral storytelling is kind of one of the most fundamental practices of Indian like storytelling culture and how the internet and technology has shaped that I think is really interesting. I think mm. that gives space to talk about things like podcasts as well. Yeah. Um, and storytelling in form and practice as well as in terms of other things. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that chapter I think is a bit more, it's a bit fermenting a little bit more in my mind at the moment. Right. Um, but it might be quite theoretical, but I am also hoping that some of what we talk about on the podcast could be useful for it. Definitely. And I think there's definitely some areas of overlap actually between our, our research. And yeah, about yeah. As well with, you know, particularly narratives and how kind of affordances are framed on, online. Um, definitely. I think the narrative point comes in so much to what we do on the podcast is yeah. thinking about the stories that we read and the stories the platforms tell us and what the, you know, and what, like, why, and, and tech companies do this all the time. I think one of the like first points of my PhD is thinking about how, tech platforms use the word storytelling all the time. Like the word storytelling has really become such a um, overused term, I think. You see it on LinkedIn, you see it like Apple will, ref- you know, have positions like storyteller in chief. Like what does that actually mean? Yeah, yeah and I think that that sceptical approach that we take will definitely yeah. be carried across in, in all the stories that, that we cover ourselves. Um, so yeah, I think, well, we've covered a lot of ground in our own research there. Absolutely, it's really cool I know. About, about Gosh, yours. it's actually good to know you can, I can feel, that was, that really, really flew by. That yeah, that's a good, about, that's a very good I'm sign. I'm talking to you about it as well. That's a good sign. Maybe as a final point, um, 
This is such a hard question because I don't mean to imply that we would rip out everything and start again. But what would you do? Diff- like, what do you think you would tell yourself at the beginning of your PhD if you could? Yeah, I think being ready for change, be ready for things to change without maybe seeking yeah. it out necessarily. So be ready for a global pandemic. <laughs> well, that's true. We didn't I actually managed to get through the whole thing without talking about COVID. But yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, the, the whole PhD experience will be very, I'm sure for you as well, very wrapped up in yeah. in that. Um, <laughs> In that pandemic experience, and of course, mm-hmm. what is already quite an isolating experience hmm. became, in some ways, more so. I think with uh, I w- with the pandemic. On the other hand, you know, th- there are certainly worse things to be doing during a pandemic than sort of getting yeah. on a PhD in a way. But um, yeah, it definitely kind of shaped it, you know, inextricably. I think so. Yeah, I'd say be you know be uh, don't be too resistant to your research mm. and data changing, particularly in our field. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I think. No PhD has stayed the same from start to finish. No, in any discipline. Uh, what about you? Um, I think I would. I was really revitalized recently by the deadline of the con- of confirmation, which is going to sound weird, but it really helped to have it. And I think we have so few deadlines during a PhD that it's very easy to lose your way between them. And of um, course, you know, this, the deadlines vary by institution as well. I'm sure yeah. they have different names and so on. But I think normally PhDs will have at least one or two Absolutely. midpoints. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. It might be different in the US, but it's certainly that that's, that's true here. And so um, I would almost have given myself more deadlines because <laughs> I think I need them. And I think that um, it's easy to feel like you're just on your own, but you can find ways to make it to make yourself not feel so much yeah. like you're on your own. Um, and I think it's interesting to me how much I, as you kind of mentioned earlier, I'm turning back to things that I read in my first year and that I initially dismissed as not being part of this PhD, but which are now coming up either in literature reviews or even in the body of other chapters. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of nice to know that nothing is really wasted time, yeah. even if it feels like it sometimes. Yeah. Hopefully nothing is wasted time. Absolutely. And you're, you're always learning, which is ultimately yeah, why we're exactly. doing any of this. Yeah, exactly. And we've learned in other ways too. Like through this podcast, I have learned so much. Yeah, yeah. same. Absolutely. Oh, well, well, it's good to, well, good to uh, chat about I know. turn the, the looking glass uh, inwards a bit. Uh, yeah. Our own research. Definitely. Um, and yeah, we will be back before long. We've got, um, well, maybe a back to our regular formula i think having done you know, yeah a lot of interviews lately this, black, uh, black mirror and so on which you mm-hmm. can by the way go and check out our, our completed now mini series on black mirror excellent, um, excellent but we'll be back with our usual mix of tech news and views before long absolutely looking forward to seeing you josh and goodbye listeners cheers bye, bye.